Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Passion Harvest. My name is Louisa. I'm the host of your show and I'm so happy that you're here today. At Passion Harvest, we aim to inspire you to live a passionate life. I have a very exciting guest today, Dr. Diane Powell. Dr. Diane is a John Hopkins trained neuropsychiatrist and neuroscientist who proposes a multidisciplinary and alternative model for brain functioning. Dr. Diane is the author of the ESP Enigma, The Scientific Case for Psychic Abilities, the 2007 Shift Report, Evidence of a World Transforming, and a contributing author to Beyond Forgiveness, Reflections on Atonement. Dr. Diane is an expert on PTSD. She co-created programs for survivors of torture, International and the McCandles Women's Centre. Dr. Diane is the former director of research for the John E. Mack Institute and a former member of Harvard Medical School's faculty and a think tank on human consciousness at the Salk Institute. Wow. <laughs> Dr. Diane's research in- investigates reports of telepathy in autistic children. This is going to be an amazing episode. Dr. Diane Powell, welcome to Passion Harvest. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Wow, I'm so um, honored to have you on the show. It's, it's, it's incredibly exciting. Um, what I'd really like to talk today and just to, to, to give a background to the audience is what is ESP and how would you define that? In not too scientific terms, but how would you define that? Well, traditionally, ESP comes from extrasensory perception. Mm-hmm. So it's knowing things that really aren't explainable by our usual senses. And a good example of that is telepathy, in which you know what someone else is thinking without there any, any good explanation for that. Another example is precognition, see, seeing something into the future. Another is psychokinesis, which is the ability of the mind, people report the ability of the mind to actually manipulate the material world. So an example of psychokinesis would be the spoon bending that that has been reported by people like Uri Geller and and various other people. Uh, There's also people though who engage in what's called psychokinesis in which they will want, for example, a bacteria to move from one part of the uh, slide into another slide. And then they're just thinking, okay, I want you to move left and then goes left. So there are people that it's using your mind to influence the external world. And another example is remote viewing, being, being able to see things that are in a totally different location in space. So it's, it's this knowing without really good explanation why. Great. And I, I guess the message that, <clears throat> that the, the question I'd like to ask, and I find this topic absolutely fascinating, what interests you about this topic? Well, I'm a, I'm a trained psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And when I went through my training, I was taught that if someone tells you that they have any of these abilities, that it's a sign of mental illness. Mm-hmm. And when I was practicing as a psychiatrist at Harvard, 
I met a patient who started to do a reading on me just spontaneously. And she knew all of these things about me that there was no way she could possibly know. And she predicted things in my future, which all came true. And I thought, if this is really a true phenomena, which I had this firsthand experience of with her, then it really is important to be able to account for it in our model for understanding how the brain works and, and what consciousness is. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. I have heard that story and it's really interesting. Um, and this is when you were at Harvard as a senior clinician. Yes. And I guess, you know, sort of there's always been the th feeling that, you know, people that have psychic abilities, they're kind of crazy, which is what you just said. And it's mm -hmm. not taken seriously. That's right. That's right. I think that um, one way to look at that is that if you have these abilities, living in our world can be challenging in many ways because our, our world doesn't really accept that information. Let's say that you are able to understand what, what someone that you work with is thinking. It, you, you can't really talk openly about that. And, and, and so that creates a certain tension and so I could see where if, you, if you're experiencing these things on a regular basis, it, 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 it creates problems for one psychologically. Although I would have to say it's becoming more and more acceptable in our current society. Would you agree with that? I would totally agree with that. And that's the thing that when I was training in psychiatry over 30 years ago, it was not something that was so widely discussed. And it, one of the things that's interesting is that if you actually go back in time to the 70s, there was a, there was a person whose name was um, Arthur C. Clarke, mm -hmm. and he said that, he wrote a book, and he, The Roots of Coincidence, and he said that there were so many notable scientists who had declared that they believed in ESP, and these figures include people like Einstein mm. and even Sigmund Freud. And Tesla. And Tesla and people at major universities that if that, that there was so much evidence for ESP at that time that if it didn't become accepted as fact that there, it would be due to a large conspiracy because there, there was so much evidence. And so what happened was is that that was all before I went to medical school. And by the time I was in medical school, it was, it was as though that, that period had never existed, as though people had never come that close to accepting it. And I guess you could also look at someone like Edgar Casey, and he did it in such a way, in quite a religious sense, that it was accepted at the time. So, I mean, from a Christian or a Catholic perspective. Well, well I think that, um, well, it's interesting because Edgar Casey got a lot of pushback from Christians, actually because of the fact he was doing past life readings for people and a lot of Christians um, uh, don't, don't believe in that. There, there are a lot of um, Christians who believe that engaging in any kind of sort of fortune telling is immoral. And yes. so, so, that, so he received actually a lot of pushback, but I think that the point is, is that he was so accurate and he did it without any, he wasn't doing this for money. I mean, he actually struggled with financial issues for, for quite a bit of time. And with him still being alive, it was kind of harder to, for people to deny. 
Very interesting. I, th- I think they also call him the sleeping prophet. He did it while he was sleeping. To, I, I think he was sleeping. Yes, he, <laughs> yes, he was, he would go into a trance and, um, and do the readings. And so he would have no recall of what he had said when he would come out of the trance and he had um, someone who was there recording like a secretary. I actually, when I gave the keynote speech at the Edgar Casey Institute, I, I actually was given the privilege of being able to lay down on the, um, on the, the couch that he laid down on when he did his readings. Oh, wow. They've still got the couch. <laughs> they still have the <laughs> they and in fact, they actually have all of the um, his desk and and, the, and all of the pictures that were there um, around his desk, and they were very careful to make sure that they were exactly positioned the way they were when he was there. Oh, that's wonderful! That's fantastic. Um, moving on, I'd like to talk to you about. So we're talking about ESP, but obviously we've done research on the brain activity when people have heightened senses of extrasensory perception. How would you describe um, the effect of the brain on people with heightened consciousness? Okay, so, so really you want to know what is it that's different about the brain of people that have these... Exactly. Brains? Let's just erase what I said and you can ask the questions. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yes, well, Thank was, you. <laughs> that, that's really what I was thinking myself <laughs> as somebody who's a trained neuroscientist and, and really interesting in understanding. Uh, the brain and consciousness. So what I did was, is I thought of all of the clinical conditions in which you have an increased report of these abilities. One of them is attention deficit disorder. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, another one is bipolar disorder. Uh, another one is autism. And another is dreaming sleep. When, when people are dreaming they oftentimes tap into psychic information that otherwise when they're awake, they never tap into. There are all of these reports throughout time of people, for example, having um, a dream about a loved one right at, right at the time that the loved one is uh, either in an accident and injured or actually dies. And it, it's called crisis telepathy. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at the imaging studies done on the dreaming brain, what you see is that there is a decrease in the activity of the frontal lobes, which, which is the, the, the part of the brain that's right behind our forehead. That's the part of the brain that is also less active in people with attention deficit disorder. And it's the reason why they have difficulty concentrating. And you also see in the dreaming person that there's a reversal of the usual dominant activity in the brain in which the left hemisphere, which is the more rational, logical, analytical, language-based hemisphere, that, that is what's predominant when we're awake. And the right hemisphere is the more intuitive, visual, spatial, um, and emotional hemisphere. And so there's a reversal of the activity. When you're dreaming, your right hemisphere is actually more active than the left. Similarly, in autism, the right hemisphere is oftentimes more active than the left. A, A lot of the deficits people with autism have are left hemisphere deficits. And so if, so I was, 
interested in autism in particular because of the fact that they, they and children in particular, because they, they demonstrate the decreased frontal lobe activity and the, that right hemisphere over left hemisphere shift. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, to decrease the frontal lobe, is there any methodology you've found to um, encourage that in, I won't say normal, normal people, but in, in, in everyone? Well, meditation is a way in which you can actually quiet the cortex in general. And that actually can help enhance uh, these kinds of abilities. It's what you want to do is you want to get rid of the noise. When, when we engage in usual thinking patterns, a lot of it's just noise and it really interferes within our ability to receive any other kind of information. How interesting. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your, um, your patients with autism and your research on that. That would be fascinating. Well, I... Um, a big subject, I, <laughs> but whatever, whatever, whatever topic you'd like to talk about, because it, it is very, very interesting. So I first became aware of autism over 30 years ago. I, I, did, I spent six months in, in England with Sir Michael Rudder, who was knighted for his work on autism. And it was at a time when autism was so rare, one in 10,000 children, that I was told that I, I wouldn't see enough autism for that to become the focus of my study. And, and now it's and, very prevalent. Yes, now we know it's very prevalent. And I found out about this condition called savant syndrome. And that is much more common in the autistic population than it is in neurotypical. We call people that, that aren't autistic neurotypical. And it's also common in people who are blind. Mm. And so I was looking at those as clues to, to um, understanding psychic abilities because people who have savant syndrome have access to information that we don't understand how they have it. And, and to give you some examples, one of them is mathematical savants. There are recordings of people going back hundreds of years in which someone who's never been trained in math all of a sudden start speaking mathematical equations and solving them. Um, another example is prime number calculation. It, these children who've never been taught math, who can provide you with prime numbers, which are the numbers that are only divisible by themselves and the number one. And there were these two identical twins who were institutionalized who couldn't do simple math and yet they had a game in which they would each say a six digit prime number and the other twin would then say the next six digit prime number that would come right after that and they would just wow. go back and forth and when Oliver Sacks studied them back in the 1960s he verified their prime number generation up to 12 digits because that's all that the computers at the time could calculate. But the, the twins gave prime number digits in the 20s. That's the 20s. amazing. So, I mean, how would you explain that? 
Exactly. Okay. <laughs> exactly. How is this possible? Um, uh, another thing that they do, uh, and these twins did, and, but a lot of savants can do, is something called calendar calculation, where they can tell you the date that, um, for example, the date that Easter would fall on in any year. Or if you said, what day of the week did um, February 13th fall on? And they could tell you for spans of tens of thousands of years. And when asked, how do you know these things? They said the answers just popped up in front of them. They, they just literally saw the answers without any effort at trying to, to calculate it. They didn't even know how to calculate. They couldn't even do basic arithmetic. So what this tells us is that we live in a we live in a world in which information can exist outside of outside of our our brains. I mean we, we tend to think of our brains as being where information resides and that any kind of um, accessing of it is some somehow some magically because we still don't know how it's done with the mm -hmm. brain <laughs> there's just this assumption that it's done with the brain and that that, that it has neuron, to be studied and learned and right that had to be studied and learned and then that neurons um that, that somehow the connection between the neurons how enables this information to be um held but there are accounts over and over again of people who have very little brain tissue, who have ordinary IQs. There are accounts of people who were not particularly bright, who have an injury. And after the injury, all of a sudden, they're a genius at some at art or in mathematics. And, and so, so we really have to rethink what, what we think about with the brain and, and, and what its relationship to information is. It's absolutely fascinating. I mean, it just reminded me, I've done, had a few interviews with people who've had near-death experiences and one man in particular, David Ditchfield, came, was hit by a train, but came back with the most incredible songwriting abilities and he started writing all this classical music and painting it and it was quite unbelievable when he'd never done this previously. Yes, exactly, exactly. There, there, there's so many um, stories of that. The, the blind savant who's a musician, and a genius at music. I mean, that's almost a cliche. <laughs> so what, what, what actually is the difference between savant and autism? Well, savant is a syndrome that savant comes from the Latins uh, that means to know. And okay. so, and, and a savant is different from a genius because it's knowing things but not having the basic skills to underpin it. And, and, okay. and it's, so it's, it's, it's having genius in the setting of great cognitive deficits. How fabulous. And how, I mean, obviously it must be challenging to research on children. How did you find that with uh, autistic savants? Well, so, so getting back to your question, so the savant syndrome is more common in autism than in any other um, condition, but it's not uh, exclusive to it. As I said, it also happens when people who are blind. Yes. Uh, 
And sorry, so, just to interrupt anyone, people that are autistic don't necessarily have the savant syndrome either. That's right. Only about 10% of people with autism have But it's still quite a high number though, isn't it? 10% is considerable. Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. And that's one of the reasons why I was so fascinated by studying that population in particular. And once I put the hypothesis out there that if anybody's going to demonstrate psychic abilities to an accurate um, accuracy that science is demanding and reliably to the extent the science is demanding, it would be somebody with autism because they don't get bored as easily by, by doing some of these tasks. Repetitive and behaviors repetitive as well. And, and, and they are so highly accurate. And so after I put that hypothesis out there, I started receiving emails and, um, and letters from people telling me, I have a child who's exactly like you're describing. And, and so I started doing controlled stu studies with them. How fascinating. The, the first child I studied, um, so, so I, well, I went over to India and, and I studied some savants over there. Um, but at the time, I, I, I wasn't really equipped to in, engage in the you know, study with all of the controls that you really need for it to be accepted by science. But I went over there and, and saw enough that I, I was um, encouraged that, that it was a real phenomenon. And coming back to the States, I met this girl whose name was Haley. And her story is that her father, who was a psychiatrist, originally thought and a psychiatrist who knew of Daryl Trefford, who has written a lot about savants. And he thought that his daughter was a mathematical savant because even though she had severe autism and couldn't do simple math, she could solve very complex mathematical equations. Well, it turned out one day that the person who was at his at-home therapist working with her on her homework, um, she she had a calculator that she was using to get the answers to these mathematical equations. And one day her calculator battery died. So she had to switch to another means of calculating. And that calculator gave her the answer in logarithmic notation. And which looks totally different from just regular digits being mm -hmm. there. And what happened was, is that Haley typed out the answer in logarithmic notation. <laughs> wow. And the therapist was, was, how did you do that? And then she started to ask her questions. Uh, she said, it's like you read my mind. And she started to ask her questions about what she was thinking. And Haley typed out exactly what she was thinking. And then it happened with the second therapist who was working with Haley, who discovered it independently because Haley would make the same mistakes that she did. And she said to her, it's, it's like you're reading my mind. And, and, Haley, and she said, Haley, how do, you, how do you say I love you in German? And Haley typed out the German for I love you. And she'd never been exposed to German. And when so you thought, say type, sorry, is that because she was incapable of speech? That's right. So a okay. lot of the children who are autistic have a form of autism, which is, it's labeled nonverbal, but it's not really that they're nonverbal because they, they do understand language. It's that they have a problem in expressing language. And that's more on the severe autism spectrum. Correct. Okay. Correct. 
And it used to be that, that it's, that's, the, that's the regressive autism. There's, there's an autism in which children are born different, and then there's autism where they're, born, they're developing normally, and then something happens, and then they regress. And the, 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 what's called the nonverbal form of autism is much more common in the regressive um, form. And it, it really is a problem with expressing language, not understanding it. And, and that's really critical for parents to understand who have an autistic child and who is nonverbal because they oftentimes have said things in front of these children that they, they just thought the child wouldn't have any way of understanding. And, and, and it really is heartbreaking when they discover that the child is taking in all of these things. So, oh. um, so, um, so the way that these children can express themselves is that they go through this, it's a pretty painful process, but they go through this process of first working with the stencil board and, and, and learning how to point to letters, and then eventually working on a keyboard and typing. Very interesting. And would you find that um, the autistic savants generally are on the higher autism spectrum? Or that's not um, been a... I would say that they are, I would say that the, the children who are the nonverbal autistic children um, are probably the most highly telepathic. And one of the reasons that I think this is the case is that my hypothesis is that we actually all are telepathic when we're born and that telepathy actually plays a large role in the acquisition of language. I mean, if you really think about what a, what a little baby, um, one-year-old, two-year-old is doing when they're acquiring language, it's like, how did they pick up so quickly that these sounds relate to these thoughts and ideas? And I suspect that they're, they're tapping into the, 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 the um, consciousness of those that they're really close to, particularly the mother, because I mean, they were in the mother's body at one point. And um, so, and, and, and it, there's a lot of uh, theorizing that this could be a survival skill too for, for a mother and their, and their early infant to be in telepathic communication. Um, and then once language develops, the telepathy goes away because it we, we become seduced by language. It's it's uh, it, it's much um, it's much easier for us to communicate that way oftentimes. And then the telepathy goes underground. But if you have a child whose development of language, the expression of language, not the understanding of it, goes um, it, it has something go awry, then they still have they have a motivation to communicate. And, and to understand what other people are thinking. And, and so it's a setup, it's a perfect setup for them to just retain that skill, um, which would be just more the, the primary skill. Very interesting. I'm just thinking, yes, I have tried to learn new languages as an adult. It's very hard. <laughs> and it's not, an, it's not a requirement, which is exactly what you've, you've just mentioned. So how do you, um, obviously each individual case is different, but when you say you do research on these children, these autistic savants what is what do you primarily do do you take notes and is it observation mainly based well um in a typical experiment what i would do is i would use a random number generator or a random word generator so that i create 
um, research stimuli for whoever is in telepathic, telepathic communication with this child mm -hmm. to look at and think about when asking the child to type what it is that they're thinking. And so, and, and the reason why I, when I say randomized, it has to be randomized because we, it, it, skeptics won't believe it if I just were to generate the stimuli myself and not randomize them because there's, there's just certain patterns that are predictable that, that are used by magicians for example, um, to make you think that they're reading your mind, but they really sort of know kind of the statistics of averages of what most people would answer, and they know how to sort of steer you towards a certain answer. So, so there, there are all these tricks of the trade that you have to, you have to make sure that what you're doing is not going to be, um, you know, uh, confounded with that as a possibility. And so, so using random, uh, ra random number and, and word generators, and having the parent or therapist, whoever it is, look at it outside of the child's sight and then asking the child to type it. And I did, um, I spent uh, with Haley, I, I was there for three days doing experiments that were two hours long and with um, literally used hundreds of stimuli. And she was phenomenal. I mean, she was she was over 95% accurate. Wow, I've just got goosebumps. <laughs> she, she, she literally, um, but one of the things that I did was I had her, she had to type what the mathematical equation was. So I would, I would something like, you know, what is, you know, 1,536,222 divided by, Know, 655 so she'd have to figure out that because she's not being told that right and then what is the solution and so 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 you would that would be a string of about um say 12 different digits and then did that 10 times and she only made three mistakes and each one of those was a typo that she went back and corrected Wow, I can tell. I mean, it's fascinating, and I can tell how passionate and excited you get by it. So it's it's just wonderful. I know autistic children do face a lot of challenges, in general, and in our society. I actually have a friend with an autistic child, and it's it's very hard. The particularly the communication. What would you say to parents who potentially think think aside from contacting you, but think that they have a autistic savant? What would be your um, message to them? Well, what we know is that these children, they have gifts. And it's really, really important to acknowledge their gift and to actually help them work, work on it and develop it even more. I, uh, with Haley, she just loved doing the telepathy experiments. She would just squeal with delight because she knew she got it right. And she was just, she was just, it was so fun to see the joy in her face. And it, what it does is it, it really helps them develop a sense of self-esteem. I mean, you know, just think about someone who's not autistic. It's not that different. That if you are really good at something, then that's what you want to do. And, and you want to get better at it. And, and, and that really helps you then 
let go of, well, I'm not as good at these other things. It doesn't matter as much. So, so, so really recognize their gift and then help them to, to, to develop it and, and um, you'll, you'll all be better off for it. Lovely. And I've just got a question. <laughs> this is probably a whole nother episode, but is there, in, in all your research, have you ever found that there's a genetic inheritance for telepathy or ESP? Oh, absolutely. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, that was an easy, oh, quick answer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it definitely, um, it runs in families. Um, but there, it's, what's interesting is it's very similar to the savant syndrome in that um, uh, these things can run in families, but not only that they can run in families, but that also there's this association between trauma and development of these abilities. Wow. And that would probably segue me onto um, working with uh, victims of trauma, which, you know, you, ha you have done a lot of work with. Wow. Um, I wasn't expecting that correlation. Why? But first, I just want to ask, I'm backtracking here, but why do you think that, in what way would the, the trauma affect the extrasensory perception? Well, what I've discovered is that this is the case for both emotional trauma and physical trauma. And when I say emotional trauma, it's particularly emotional trauma early on in life. And I think that if you really, um, if, if, you, if you, if what I do is I, I, I'm also somebody who has studied various animals and because I, I feel that we have a lot to learn from that. And so thinking of it from the standpoint of, you know, what's the survival skill? And if you are traumatized as a small child, then you orient to the world in a very different way than someone who's never been traumatized. There, there's a certain hyper alertness that you have where you, you, you don't, you, you don't um, let your guard down quite as easily oftentimes in certain situations. And there's, this, there's such a strong motivation to be on top of things that I think, and, and at an age when, when you're young, when psychic abilities are much more common. Uh, there's, there's so many children who will report having certain experiences that just get written off as fantasy or that was a dream, honey, or this mm -hmm. and that. And, and so, the, so children who are very young, they oftentimes report, oh, you know, remembering past lives or, you know, various other things or imaginary play friends and, and, and these sorts of things. And you have to really think about, you know, maybe these child, children are actually more capable of having these experiences, but we get taught that no, that's not possible. No, that's not possible. That's not happening. And, and, and so many of the people that I've met along um, in my professional work, and, and I've met a lot of adult people who've become uh, professional psychics and, and been interested in imaging of them and you know, that sort of thing to find out what's different about their brain. That, and it goes along with what my hypotheses have been. Um, they, uh, they inevitably have stories of when they were children and, and having it, you know, it kind of shut down. Sometimes it even goes, they go underground, particularly as teenagers where they just, because they, there's such a need that 
that people have to want to feel like you fit in. And, and so, but, you know, young little children, you know, you know, a three or four year old, they'll just, oh, they'll tell you what they're thinking because they're just so excited about everything. And they don't, yeah. they don't have that same kind of filter. And they're not inhibited by, you know, the society's conditions. That, that's right. And then also um, just in normal development, um, the frontal lobes are not fully attached to the rest of the brain. They're, they're the myelination, which is what is the insulation that allows for fast conduction for, of neurons, that, that, that it's not fully myelinated. And so small children are much more, basically, they're, they're born ADD essentially, because they, and so that's why they, their concentration span's not as, um, as good as an adult and why they um, are so uninhibited. And so as those tracks become myelinated, then um, a lot of these things disappear. And at approximately what age do they become myelinated or attached? Um, well, fully myelinated, so fully myelinated can occur somewhere in between the ages of, um, 11 and 18. Some people are late bloomers. Very interesting. And, and as you mentioned, you have done some research or you have friends or you know people that are psychics as adults and you had done research. Did you find differences in their frontal cortexes and their right brain? Yes. Yes. Similar to exactly similar to your hypotheses. Mm-hmm. How yes. interesting. Um, I really would like to ask you about working with survivors of torture, and you did mention it, it heightened, you know, with heightened um, ESP. How it must be traumatic, or I'm just thinking from my um, point of view, working with survivors of trauma. How how was that, and how did you detach yourself from the the issues that they presented? Oh, I still work with people who are survivors with uh, severe trauma, um, but um, well, it, what enables me to do the work that I do is in part because I, I experienced trauma of various kinds when I was a child. Um, things like um, when I was five years old, I, my, my father lost me at the Seattle World's Fair. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and and, uh, and I, I never thought I'd ever see my family again. Oh. Um, and so this is, you know, you have to realize this is, you know, in the early 60s, this is before we had cell phones. Uh, we, um, I, I didn't, I didn't have, know my phone number. I didn't, I mean, there was none of that. I, I just, I had read these, I don't know if you're familiar with the children's book um, about Madeline, but you know, these little French The, French, the little French girl, yes. <laughs> Madeline I thought that was going to be me. I thought oh. I was going to be me. At boarding school, wasn't she at boarding school? Yeah, I thought I, I thought that was going to be me. Um, uh, there were I almost drowned um, when I was um, around twelve. Um, I um, I fell off. I thought we were mountain climbing when I was um, four and a half, and um, I, I fell off the side of the cliff. Um, grabbed onto a piece of shrub that was sticking outside of the mountain. Um, I lived in New Jersey, uh, just outside of New York, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. We had air raid tra- um, drills all the time, and mm-hmm. we were concerned about World War III back then. And I was there when they had school busing, and there were racial riots. And so I, I experienced a tremendous amount of trauma for someone growing up in the United States. Yes. Um, in, in sixth grade, uh, there was a school shooting. Uh, 
somebody came onto the playground and started shooting uh, at the children. Um, so I, because I had experienced all that trauma and I had survived it in a way that gives me insight into what that does to you, and and I'm a strong person. I I have a way that I can relate to people who've experienced trauma, such that they get a sense from me that they can tell me whatever is going on, and they don't need to protect me. Because what what happens with people who have been severely traumatized is that they become so isolated from others because they feel like they can't share their story because they can see the reaction in people's eyes or people want to shut them down just to say, oh, but you know, it's okay now and da da da. And they just need to be able to just whatever it is they need to do to, to share their story and know that they are being met with compassion and, and a sense of knowing and a sense of recognizing the tremendous resilience that we have as human beings. Um, and, and, I, and so, so it's um, the only reason why I've been able to do this work with them is because I've had a very good success rate in helping them and, um, and I can see their transformation. And, um, and, I, and I know that having gone through my own transformation, I know it's possible. How wonderful. And is there also potentially, I mean, obviously there's so many elements and aspects to it, but is there a shame associated with some um, patients with a severe trauma in whatever capacity? Well, there's, I, I work with a lot of people who are incest survivors and mm -hmm. those people, um, there's a tremendous amount of shame and a tremendous amount of um, pressure was put on them to not talk with anybody about anything. Um, and, uh, and, and oftentimes there's this multi-generational incest. And so I, it wasn't something that I sought out as a, as a career to, to work with people who were survivors of incest. But what happened was is that when people found out about me, I just attracted them in droves. <laughs> and, um, and what I see is that a lot of them, they feel a lot of shame. And, and what they need to understand is that there's nothing to be ashamed about. You, you, you didn't, um, you didn't create that. You didn't, you, you didn't really, um, to me, shame is something that if you, if you did something that you know was wrong and you were of the, um, age and in the position to make another choice. And, and that's not the case for any of these people. They, they would have totally made a different choice. And, um, so I, I think that, um, the appropriate response is compassion and what happens is is that if you give people compassion and you do it consistently and they know it's authentic then over time people heal you just answered my question because <laughs> i was about to say obviously everyone's different but you know is sexual abuse particularly incest in in the family is it something ever anyone ever gets over um i'd say that it, it leaves its scars it leaves its scars but but it doesn't have to um, incapacitate you, but it does. It leaves its scars. I mean, there, there's just there's some things that people never completely get over, but you can get over it enough that you can you, that you can have a life that can be fulfilling, and yeah, move forward. Mm -hmm. Very very interesting. My gosh, what a lot of work you're doing. <laughs> I, I tried to cover a lot of bases. <laughs> oh my gosh. 
I've got a lot of questions for you in the in the interest of time. I'm just trying to think of what are the most relevant. Um, you mentioned uh, briefly before about the dream telepathy or the death tele- telepathy. I just wanted to touch on that again. Um, is it more that so um, you called it neurotypical the, for neurotypical persons, people? When the, when you talk about the dream telepathy, is that because we're obviously I know the physical symptoms, but is it because we could, you could say we're more relaxed and um, we're, I guess we're out of our conscious mind with all the stuff that's going on around us? Or could you explain a little bit more about dream telepathy? Well, I think that, so if you think about dreams, I mean, most of us can remember at mm-hmm. least, you know, some of our dreams, but, um, some people, some people are better at it than others. Um, Dreams can take on a quality of um, being similar to our waking life, but typically our dreams also, that we accept whatever we experience in the dream as though, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah this person has three eyes or, or um, I'm flying now. I mean, it, you know, whatever, we accept it. So what, if you think about how the brain works, what that is, is that the, with the left hemisphere no longer the one running the show and, and the right hemisphere being there, which Dominant. is the more sensible, um, creative, intuitive side, um, logic goes out the window. And so we're no longer judging what is possible. And, and when, so, so we're actually navigating the world when we're dreaming, we're, we're navigating the world in, in a way that's really not judging what's possible. And, and it's also the, the, the right hemisphere is the more emotional um, processing uh, hemisphere. And so people that we have a strong bond with are the ones that we're most likely to have a, telep- a telepathy experience with. And when somebody's in crisis, that's also a heightened emotional thing. And so it's as though the way I see our, one way to think about our brain is think of it as being not that dissimilar from our smartphone. And it has different apps. Great analogy. And, <laughs> and, and, and when, you're, when you're running, when you're running the, the, the left hemisphere app, um, what, what you're accessing is very different from what you're what you're accessing. It's it's like the left hemisphere app is like it's just this mundane world. But when you go into the right hemisphere app, it's the one that's connected with everything. It's the it, it's the more fanciful, um, and and creative and intuitive and um, uh, connected. And so 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 that's really the way to think about it because we're 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 our our brain enables us to navigate basically an informational field and and some of that information is um, proximal it's it's the room that we're in it's the person in front of us and that's more of a left hemisphere and um, let's say uh, dealing with that information and the right hemisphere think of it is that that that's what enables us to go where distance time and space are no longer relevant 
what you can't actually see with your physical eyes. Right. And if you think of the world as um, if things being organized holographically, which there's a lot of evidence that things are organized holographically, what that means is that all of the information about everything is contained everywhere. Um, a, a hologram, if we, if we create a hologram, and you, you can use two lasers, which is a, a, a source of coherent light, and you can capture an image, a three-dimensional image in glass. And you, you, know, you can look at this piece of glass and you see, oh, let's say you, know, you have a, a Buddha in there and, and you can look at it, you can see it, you know, it's three-dimensional, you can look at it. It's just like a statue of a Buddha inside of this glass. But if you were to shatter that glass, every little fragment of that glass would contain a little Buddha. Not a section of the Buddha, the complete Buddha. Very interesting. I mean, when you mentioned that uh, consciousness and the information is everywhere, all the information requires everywhere, is that, would you like, I think I've heard you talk about it before, would you liken that to the Akashic Records? I would liken that to the Akashic Records. I would, I would say it's similar to the cloud. I, I have access to everything in, from my smartphone because all of this information is in the cloud. doesn't matter if I'm here or in the United States or I'm in Australia. You and I can access the same information because it's there and it's here. We just need a really high-powered network <laughs> provider. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, you know, if you think about so our, our human-made technology pales in comparison with what our innate abilities really are. And maybe it's just remembering that, remembering how to access that. It really is. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated. Another thing that I study is, is what did the ancients know? Mm. I mean, there's so much evidence that the, the, that the ancients who, who lived here thousands of years ago knew a lot more than we do about these sort of esoteric things and a lot of that information was buried just like their cities were buried I mean, with the satellite technology that we have today we're seeing that there was far more uh i mean huge cities you know far more civilization than we ever imagined thousands of years ago it just got it just came buried i mean we were aware of the pyramids in Egypt, but it turns yes. out there's pyramids all over the world, but a lot of them are buried. Very interesting. And I think a lot of them are suppressed. I know you've talked before about how um, we're controlled by the media. Yes. Can I ask you, I mean, I've got an idea, but can I ask you why you think, why you think that is? Well, I mean, there's a reason why they call it programming. Not propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> Just programming. Okay. If, 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 you, if you really think about it, where do we get our ideas from? I mean, most of us, our ideas are not that original. It, we've seen something somewhere. And, and, and so, so, you know, whether it's movies or television or, or the 
people in our life, whatever, we're influenced by what we actually witness, hear, experience through, through, through our various senses. Yes. And then we can play with that a bit and be creative with it. But, but the reality is, is that what we experience really is uh, what we take in the deep, most, most deeply. And, 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 and so what happens is, is that for a lot of people, their concept of the world is fairly uh, limited because they, they really have a, um, that they, you know, they just have their, their life is, you know, a small circle of people and, and, and small exposure and, and their larger exposure to life is whatever it is that they see on, um, on the screen the somewhere. Yeah. And the media oh, or that they've you know, been taught that whatever. The... That's right. And, and we, we, um, and so we tend to the stuff that we directly experience in our body and not on a screen, that's harder for us to um, give up and say, well, that's not real. Um, it, it's easier to say, well, I saw it in a movie or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. And to say, well, maybe it isn't true. Or, you know, I saw it on the media. But, but, but the thing is, is that if you hear something or see something over and over and over again, even if it's not direct experience, there's much more of a tendency to then consider it real just because of the sheer repetition of it. And people who are in media know that. I mean, uh, it's... Uh, yes, they have a, you know, everyone has their own agenda. It's almost like you're watching their reality and not watching your own or creating your own reality, really. That's right. And, and so if you look at autism, I mean, what... The, by definition, what the term autism comes from is it, it comes from auto, you know, as in autonomy. Um, mm -hmm. Auto is that it's named for the fact that these children seem to be in their own world. Yes. They were, they, they, so they're tuning out a lot of what's out here and going in there in their own world. And for many of these children, they're extremely sensitive to all sensory phenomena that, you know, they're very sensitive to, to, you know, they can't wear certain fabrics. They're very sensitive to noises. They're sensitive to harsh lights. And so they tune out. It's like they, they engage in some, you know, their own attempt to do sensory isolation. They tune out a lot of other stuff and they, they, they're more of an inward process. Well, what is meditation? Yeah, so we have a lot to learn from autism, don't we? Gosh. Yes, we do. <laughs> what a beautiful interview. I'd love, um, unless there's anything else you'd like to talk about, I'd really like to end our conversation on the manifesto you signed and what it represents, the Academy for Advancement of Post-Materialistic Sciences. Yes. <laughs> it, it sounds fabulous and I've heard a lot about it. If you would like to talk about that, that would be a beautiful way to end the um this incredible interview. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, so I'm one of 350 scientists um, around the world who signed this manifesto because we all believe very deeply based on the scientific evidence that's already out there that it's time to declare the materialist uh, paradigm dead. And we, we all have um, our own perspective as to why that is the case, but we all do agree on that. And the materialist paradigm is just that 
all there is is what we can sense with our senses. That there's our nothing five, more. Our five senses. Our five senses. Okay. That there's nothing more. And so there's um, this new academy in which we said we're we're not going to wait for the um, powers sort of, that be or the powers to be <laughs> to finally agree that we have accumulated enough evidence when they really don't even want to look at the evidence. They 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 have a they actually have a um, a, a strong uh, interest in not looking at it because it, it's it's really difficult to, to stay in the mainstream and, 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 and look at the evidence. Once you see it, there's no going back. And so they, they just rather keep their blinders on. And the, the reason why many scientists sign this post-materialist uh, paradigm shift uh, manifesto is that we see it as akin to what happened with physics over 100 years ago when we stopped thinking of particles as being something solid and started to realize that there's this quantum world in which it, instead of an, an electron or a photon of light being just being a particle, like a little, you know, like a marble, that it's actually a wave of potentiality and, and at times it acts like a wave and at times it acts like a particle. And what makes it act like a particle is the act of observation, our direct input as conscious beings of, of, of measuring and observing collapses that, that quantum wave of potentiality into the reality. That's just wonderful. And it opens up a whole new world, well, literally as well, but a whole new world of research and possibilities. It's, it's, and it's, it's just wonderful to take a stance and create this incredible platform. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest, Dr. Diane. It's been an absolute honor. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. -bye. Bye. That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening and please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and spread the passion. As always, every day, may you be more and more passionate.